Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 245. It's titled, Is College Worth It? Last week, there was a lawsuit filed against dozens of well-to-do parents, prominent law and business figures, two Hollywood actresses, and they were charged with using bribes, fake entrance exam scores, such as on the SAT, faked athletic achievements to get their children into college. The Wall Street Journal reports, quote, one New York law firm co-chairman allegedly paid $75,000 to an admissions consultant so his daughter could fly to Los Angeles and take the ACT in a private room last December, accompanied by a proctor who had been paid to correct her heirs. Another family allegedly made a $400,000 contribution to a sham charity in 2016 with a portion of the funds funneled to the then head tennis coach at Georgetown University in exchange for having their daughter tagged as a recruited athlete. She was admitted to the school. Andrew Lelling, he's the U.S. attorney for the District of Massachusetts, said there can be no separate college admission system for the wealthy. But in fact, there is. He went on to say, we're not talking about donating a building so that a school is more likely to take your son or daughter, which they are, which would be a separate college admission systems. But he said, we're talking about deception and fraud. It's getting much more difficult to get into these highly selective schools. Harvard University accepts only 4.6% of its applicants. That's down from 8% in 2008. Princeton accepts 5.5% of applicants, down from 9.3% in 2000. Stanford, 4.3% of applicants. That's down from 9.5%. And as a result, it's hard to get into some of these prestigious schools. There are now 17,000 college consultants compared to 2005. What do they do? Well, they charge up to $1,000 an hour to help these families, essentially their students, get into a top school. McGregor Crowley He is a counselor at Ivy Wise. This is an education consulting company based in New York. He's a former admissions officer at MIT. He said when any student gets into a top school, others are going to wonder what that family may have done to get in. And more and more, there are families that are hiring firms like Ivy Wise, who have an average cost of $25,000 per student. But some parents pay over six figures for help providing counseling, helping students with the college application, helping them write the essays, assisting them with figuring out what extracurricular activities to pursue. 
strategic tips on where to donate to a particular school so that to help fund a building so your child is more likely to get in. When I was in high school, I admit, I didn't even consider attending an Ivy League school. I didn't, I probably could, I don't think I could even name who was in the Ivy League. I knew of Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Princeton because my cousin went there. I did as little as possible in high school to get a B. If I felt like working, I got an A. Well, the only college I ever considered was University of Cincinnati. Any other school, I had just had no idea how I would pay for it. And when I went to UC, I went to the financial aid office and they gave me some Pell Grants. And later, I got some loans, but I left school with less than $10,000 in debt, a degree in finance, and then I went on with my career, which was in the investment advisory space. One of our duties was to research money managers, and the money managers would come to our office there in Cincinnati, and they would show us their presentation books. The members that worked in the investment community that were managing money overwhelmingly had degrees from Ivy League schools. It was pretty clear to to work for a New York money manager, you needed to have a degree from a prestigious school. The sad part is, when I looked at those bios, I was impressed. I thought they were smarter because they went to a prestigious school. When I was applying to law school, by then, my eyes were open and I thought, I'd like to go to a more selective school. I applied to Harvard. I applied to Yale, Michigan, Virginia. I didn't hire a counselor. I was turned down by all of them. I was accepted by Ohio State. By, by then, I decided I didn't want to go to law school. But even at our advisory firm, I remember us hiring employees that had gone to, to Ivy League school and thinking, hey, this will look good in our bios at the back of our presentation book. It's a little sad. But it raised the question to me, does attending elite university, a prestigious school, matter? Does attending college matter? That's what we're going to look at in this episode. The first paper I found was by Stacy Dale and Alan Kruger, and it's titled Estimating the Return to College Selectivity Over the Career Using Administrative Earnings Data. What they did is they had two graduation cohorts, 1976 and 1989, and they followed to see where they went to school, other characteristics, the demographics, and how much they earned based on tax data. What they found was that, generally speaking, you went to a better school, more selective school, you did better, but there was a hidden variable. What they found is if they controlled for statistically controlled, based on the ambition of the student, which they determined based on how many other schools did they apply to and what was the average SAT score of those schools. And once they controlled for that, they found that the financial returns for going to a more selective school was, quote, generally indistinguishable from zero. In other words, ambitious students did better earnings-wise, whether they went to a prestigious school or a less selective school. They did find a notable exception, though, that, that racial and ethnic minorities, they specifically mentioned Black and Hispanic students, and students whose parents had, had little education, 
those subgroups actually did better earnings-wise having gone to a more prestigious school. They suspected that it had something to do with the fact that minority students and students from disadvantaged families had access to networks, more social capital. They were able to meet people that helped further their career. But for non-minority students, it didn't matter whether they went to a highly selective school. Another study by Dirk Witteveen and Paul Attewell was titled Family Background and Earnings Inequality Among College Graduates. What they found is if you graduate from a more prestigious school, that how much you earn 10 years later, it actually depended on on your family background. Here's what they wrote. Graduates' pay is related to the selectivity of the college they attended, to their major and to their academic performance on tests and college GPA. However, these factors do not erase the pay gap associated with disadvantaged family background or even middle-class background relative to higher parental income groups. Even those students from disadvantaged backgrounds who graduate from the most selective colleges earn less than their classmates. Why is that? Well, they point out that that perhaps it is flat-out just discrimination. They they didn't put it so, so directly, but that potentially one reason, that those that are hiring are looking for certain characteristics. Another reason is perhaps what they called a, a parental bridge, just the help that parents can provide their kids in finding the right job or having the luxury of time, maybe move back home for a little bit to, to find that first job. But the data is pretty clear that there is a, a pay gap based on your family background. So what can we take away? Does college matter? Well, if you're ambitious and talented, you you could succeed irrespective of the college you attend. And a college is a great place to build up social capital, to build up a network in order to, to find that first job. Although as I look back, it didn't have to be that way. I worked 20 hours a week or more while in college. And I think about what network did I have from people I met in college. I don't know anyone that I went to college with that I stay in touch with. So it doesn't have to be. I stay in touch with friends I went to high school with. And I'm friends with people I've met in the workplace over the years. And I have a network now. But you sort of build networks as you, pro- you progress in your profession. But I, I suppose having one coming out of college... And particularly, alumni help graduates get jobs. But the family background matters. And it takes work to overcome, to sort of understand the, just sort of the social cues. Many that I, that I was clueless of, given my background, that I learned. I remember a founding partner in investment firm. We, we hired a, essentially an etiquette consultant to, to teach us. None of us, again, had, had prestigious family backgrounds to teach us etiquette, or just sort of some of the refineries. It reminds me, I've been reading the autobiography of the philosopher Nietzsche, and he mentioned in there that the the French author Stendhal, he said, Stendhal is one of the happiest accidents of my life. He is quite priceless. And I realized I hadn't read any 
as Stendhal's works. I've been reading the novel The Red and the Black. The lead character there is named Julian, and he comes from a very, very poor background. And he gets a position as a tutor, and the, the lady of the household becomes his lover and mentor. And the book says, Julian was indebted to Madame de Renal for an entirely new understanding of the books he read. He had ventured to ply her with questions as to all sorts of little things of ignorance, of which seriously handicaps the intelligence of a young man born outside of the ranks of society, whatever natural genius one may choose to attribute to him. So have to kind of overcome those disadvantages. Now, I know it's so much easier now than it was when then this book came out in 1830. But it's still there. And that prejudice and that discrimination is still there. The other thing that's happening with college is more and more individuals go to college. There's a degree uh, of degree inflation that employers are using college degree as a screening device. This is from a study. The principal's authors are Joseph B. Fuller, of Harvard Business School and Manjari Raman, also of Harvard Business School. And the study is dismissed by degrees how degree inflation is undermining U.S. competitiveness and hurting America's middle class. They write, in many organizations, while employers recognize that candidates need to be vetted on the basis of their competence, companies rely on proxies like educational attainment to define the applicant pool. They did a survey of 600 companies, human resource professionals, to kind of figure out their hiring practices. And, and what they're finding is many companies are, are, those doing specific jobs don't have a degree. But they're hiring those that have a college degree to, to fill those jobs as non-degree holders might leave. And they found that the majority of employers pay between 11% and 30% more for college graduates. But then they found that the non-graduates with experience perform equally or well or better on the job that in terms of the time it takes them to reach full productivity. How long do they get to the next pr- promotion? Just the level of pr- productivity in general. And so the, the college graduates aren't, aren't better at many of these jobs because you learn the skills on the job. And so a college degree ends up being kind of a filter which is unfortunate because many, because then these many skilled non-degree holders aren't able to get into some of these jobs. They also found that there's indirect costs that many of the college graduates they didn't stay long. They were they were less satisfied with the work environment. But clearly, having a college degree makes it easier to get a job. Not hopefully because you studied and you learned something, but often just because employers are requiring a degree in order to be hired. They're using it to to make the applicant pool smaller, which means that as more and more individuals get college degrees, that they need to raise the filter level. Now many jobs require a master's degree. My son was looking at jobs in his field. Most required a master's degree And when he looked at what the job entailed, it it was clear a master's degree wasn't necessary. It was there just to kind of raise the bar to shrink the applicant pool. 
As I thought about this, this whole idea of getting into college and getting a job coming out of it, and it's all based on will they pick me? Well, I'd be one of the 5% that gets selected by Harvard. As opposed to, what have you done? What's your body of work? Can you even find you on the internet in terms of things that, that you've produced? Which is a different way to go about it, a way to hack the system. If you can't get into a prestigious school, start producing stuff. Start, start doing things. One of the questions then, but if you could and you can, or you're, you're getting into college, how much debt should you take on? Is it worth borrowing $50,000 or more? Before we look at that, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsor. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. A study by the Brookings Institution found that in 2014, the share of students that had student loan balances over $50,000 was 17%. That compares to 5% in the year 2000 and 2% in 1990. More than 50% of the debt outstanding, student loan debt, is from borrowers with more than $50,000 in debt. Now, part of that is because now there are higher loan limits. Now, I first thought, well, how much is this due to 
debt limits have been raised, for example, several times in the last decades in terms of how much you could borrow. And I wondered to what extent were colleges raising tuition prices to reflect that? Clearly, I think for-profit schools, oftentimes they set their tuition based on how much students can borrow. Public schools, state-sponsored schools, private nonprofit schools, I looked at their inflation rates. This is from the, the college board. Interestingly, from in the 2008 through 2018, the inflation rate for four-year nonprofit schools is 2.3%. In fact, it was like that from 1998 to 2008, only about 2.3%. A little higher in the 80s. So from 1988 to 1998, tuition raised each year by 2.9%. Where much of the tuition increase is at public four-year schools because states, governments, were willing to fund less. They used to pick up a much higher percent of tuition or the cost of running a college. So when you look at the annual rate, the increase in tuition and fees at public four-year public schools, it was essentially 4.1 to 4.2 percent from 1988 to 2009. Over the past decade, it's been about three percent, but much higher, which is why student loan balances are getting higher. If you're going to take out a student loan and, and you're talking $50,000 or more, you have to think very, very carefully about the ability to pay that loan off. Because what, what they're finding is that the higher the debt balance, the, the more difficult it is. They, they did a study and they looked at the median borrower who had less than $50,000 in student loan debt in early 2000s paid off his or her debt within 10 years. While the median borrower that had more than $50,000 10 years later still owed about 75% of, of what they owed. And most of the students falling behind on their student loan debts today are those that have balances greater than $50,000. You have to be very careful about borrowing those types of, of sums. Perhaps if you're in a more highly lucrative career, engineering, for example, technology, but something where it's pretty clear there's a demand, you'll be able to get a job right away. But if it's, it's liberal arts or something where you kind of have to find your way through your network, I don't think it's prudent to borrow those type of sums, even to go to a, an elite school. That doesn't mean you shouldn't study liberal arts. I mean, I, I think we should, but there, there's cheaper ways to do that. Maybe you go to a, a community college for a couple of years and then transfer the one thing that, that's important is, is college worth it is, is to finish. Most of students that go to four-year for-profit schools, only 37% graduate. So those that went in 2012, so this 2012 cohort, only 37% of those attending a four-year for-profit school graduated. Four-year public school is 65% graduated. And a four-year private nonprofit school, 76% graduated. This is from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. Across all students, 58% of students that started college in 2012 had graduated six years later. So you have to finish if you're going to start. The debt is important. How much debt are you taking on? 
Many students, and, and this, this is an absolute travesty. Back in 2007, there was a new program established by Congress that allowed, it was the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. And the idea was if you made 120 qualifying monthly payments under a qualifying repayment plan, while working full-time for a qualifying employer, you could have the remainder of your student loan balance paid off. So 10 years, and these were the idea with these were jobs in social service sector that jobs that just weren't paying as much. And, and, the, and so you could work 10 years and you could have your loans forgiven. So this was in 2007. So October 2017 became the first month that borrowers could potentially qualify for forgiveness. There were 33,000 applications for loan forgiveness under this program that potentially individuals that, that wanted to have their loans forgiven, that they felt like we've worked and paid off our student debt for 10 years. We now are ready to have them have the debt forgiven. And what they found that 29,000 of those 33,000 applicants, 70%, so 29,000 of them, 70% of the 29,000 were denied because they didn't meet the program requirements, such as they didn't have, and, have an eligible loan, or they didn't, hadn't made 120 qualifying payments, or they didn't have the qualifying employment. Another 28% were denied because they just had incomplete information on the form. 98% of those that applied for forgiveness, it was denied. Only 300 applicants were approved. Now, there's something wrong with that. Anne Helen Peterson was writing, wrote an article on BuzzFeed about this. She said, applicants' loans weren't eligible, their employer hadn't been certified, or their payments had been counted toward the applicable, hadn't been counted toward the applicable 120 necessary payments to receive forgiveness. Either tens of thousands of Americans, many of them with advanced graduate degrees, had totally bungled the process, or the process itself, and the lack of clear information about it set up those borrowers to fail. It was the process. Two years after that act was passed in, 19, in, in 2009, that's when the requirement that you had to have your employer certified. And you had to switch to a, a specific loan servicer to track this. If you just kept with your, your existing loan servicer, then, then you didn't qualify. And the existing loan servicers, they, don't, they lose their fees if, if you transfer your student loan to somewhere else. So th this is a program that needs to be fixed. I mean, the idea was great, but kind of sad in terms of the implementation. The bottom line is, does, is college worth it? It is. You're more likely to get a higher paying job because you do learn things in college, but it's not worth it at any price. You have to be very careful about the, the amount of debt that you, you take on. And we have to recognize that college is a way that employers, having a degree is a way employers screen out candidates. That those that are using some type of quantitative system, if you don't have a degree, they won't, they won't talk to you, which is unfortunate. Because as we saw, it, having a degree does not necessarily mean you're smarter or better. Where you go to school doesn't necessarily mean you'll be more successful. What's more important is, you know, what you learn is matter more than a degree what you know. 
Your body of work, what you have produced, matters more than the degree. Your network, who you know, your friendships, your mentors, that matters more than the degree. And your ambition. You're willing to work hard, to be creative, to figure things out, to learn how the world works, including you know, some of these social cues, etiquette. I mean, those are important also. So college matters, but it doesn't matter for everything. That's episode 245. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com, the links that I discussed, the studies I discussed in this episode. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide. The free weekly email. I'll send you that week's show note links, as well as an additional essay I I do each week, usually on a t- sometimes on the topic related to that week's episode. That something didn't make it into the podcast. Something sometimes it's on something completely different. A follow up from an earlier episode. Some of the best writing I do each week only goes to that email list. So please sign up at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation or not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.